the concentration which we acquire through the continuation of the meditation practice has to lead us somewhere it has to have some sort of um, result now in its first instances it has many benefits which we have discussed and these benefits build up on top of each other so that eventually we have an inner life which is different from what we've had so far what we have discussed is the first three purifications are the first three purifications virtue mind and view virtue reacting differently than we usually do mind substituting changing from unwholesome to wholesome view seeing ourselves in a more analytical way breaking ourselves up into different parts which show us and more objective view where we can recognize how a human being all human beings act and react in a predestined way because of the way we are built and if we don't break through that that we will not gain any real peace now with all that with all these purifications we work on both levels through the meditative process and through the recognition of what goes on within in all our daily life and activities the next purification the purification of doubt now again we have a great assistance through the meditative process if it comes together if we actually can concentrate we are helped in letting go of our doubt about our own ability and our doubt about the truthfulness of the instruction it's not enough it's only a beginning we need to have more investigation to recognize what the teaching is really telling us and in order to come to a perfection of this particular purification or culmination in it our insight has to become 
spiritually strong. At this stage, it is important to investigate everything that comes within our scope of attention as to one of the three characteristics that permeate the universe. I have up to now described two of them in detail, impermanence and dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, which go hand in hand with each other because that which is impermanent can never be fully satisfactory. The third one I have mentioned again and again because it is the essence of the profundity of the Buddha's statement. This essence, once seen, turns our view upside down. And it actually becomes, in the end, a non-view. But in the beginning, it changes our view completely. This third one, the corelessness, substancelessness, anatta, in the Mahayana teaching, sunyata, Literally translated, when you translate anatta, literally, it means non-I. Atta is I, me, and an is non. Of course, it hinges on that. In the Buddhist description, this is what we're aiming for, to see non-I, non-me. Because when we see non-me, we also see that there isn't anything that has a substance anywhere. Well, sometimes there is that sort of controversy with a sunyata, the word, the concept, is further reaching than anatta. Sunyata describes the emptiness of all phenomena and anatta, the emptiness of this personal phenomena, has that as its result. Now what does it mean, emptiness of all phenomena? Nice sentence, isn't it? Sounds really like something. Well, it is something. But to grasp it, we do need two aspects. The first one is intellectual. We've got to understand what the Buddha is talking about. If we don't understand, it's highly unlikely that we should ever find our way there. Again, it is like a road map. If we can't read the road map, it's highly unlikely we're going to get to our destination. However, only reading the road map isn't going to get us there either. So we first read the road map. 
and we know exactly what it says. And then we get on the way. And having this road map on hand, we don't lose our way. There is very often this mistaken view, rampant, I mustn't think. Well, if the Buddha hadn't thought, we wouldn't have the teachings available. We mustn't think rubbish. Yes. The Buddha calls it wise consideration, yoniso maniskara. We have to consider wisely. Each one of us has some wisdom. Maybe a little, maybe a little more. Whatever it is, we've got to use it. The more we calm the mind and direct the mind towards the understanding of these totally different ideas that daily life would never offer us, the more wisdom will arise. Actually, wisdom as I have said before and will say again in order to remind you, is the understood experience. If we don't understand what's happening to us, no wisdom will arise. We all have the experience of anicca dukkha anatta, constantly, all the time, from morning to night, all our life. Since we don't understand it, we don't know it. Now, from this moment on, if we can remember something about it and take this practice seriously, we may be able to actually not only experience it, but know it. So for this particular path, we need to understand have the understanding of this roadmap, the intellectual understanding. What did the Buddha tell us when he said anatta? He said that we have a mistaken view about this person here, the one that is creating all our problems, but also creating all our pleasures, the one that's in the center of the universe as far as we are concerned. Each one of us is the center of our universe. That this is, of course, an illusion is obvious, since there must be at least four billion centers of this universe, according to the numbers of people living on this little globe, and who knows whether there aren't any more somewhere else. But still, this is how we use this me. Now, as long as we've got it, there's nothing to be done about it. However, he wants to show us that we're using an absurd delusion through investigation and through contemplation and through meditation. To get at this absurd delusion just by thinking about it will never be enough. The first step is that we have a look to see whether it is really possible that there is a core substance within. So instead of 
trying to find the non-self we are to try and find the self because what doesn't exist cannot be found so it's useless to look for something that's non that's not so we must look for that what we think is self and the first step in that search are the five aggregates which I have already explained I've already talked about them in a sense of impermanence in their moving aspect in their objective way of being so now the other investigation is do I own them are they mine are they really me the Buddha's instructions are that our self-notion arises from this idea that we own each thought feeling perception sense contact and of course the body now we don't go around saying I own this but we live under the assumption that that's me we don't have to say I own it we have to we just have to say that's me and somebody asks us who are you we'll give them a name possibly an occupation maybe a marital status maybe an address all that me age so then when we've done that we have identified ourselves that's an identification process so that we can't be um, taken for somebody else but it's not just that we identify not only with each thought that comes along we don't just identify with each feeling that we have and get all upset or or elated about them we identify also with outer conditions we identify with being man or woman young or old rich or poor stupid or intelligent beautiful or ugly father mother daughter son friend all the more of it the better because it gives me a more solid base for my ego identification for my me identification should any one of these drop out like for instance being a mother could drop out being a husband could drop out if the other person disappears that belongs to that to make it so the great sorrow can also not only or usually is also a displacement of the ego identification all of a sudden I'm not no longer that what I used to be that should give us pause to think if we were ever take up enough take out enough time to really examine our reactions See, we also identify with being a teacher, a lawyer, a carpenter, a baker, a secretary, a nurse. I am. And then 
we are no longer and then that part is gone and if it's shed voluntarily it doesn't matter if somebody takes it away it's awful it feels terrible so we need to investigate uh, that alone already to see whether this me which can be so easily disrupted and has to have so many support systems is a reality or whether we've made it up how can so many people make up the same illusion so many people make up the same illusion because it starts with an optical illusion it looks as if we are all separate little heaps sitting here it looks as if each one is entirely different from the next one and to some people it looks even as if each one is threatening the one that's called me some people even have that difficulty and some people think the whole lot of the other heaps are disregarding the one that's me there's all sorts of ideas about this about the fact that they're all separate people and we look and we say of course each one separate so this one must be called me because that one's called you there's got to be some identification somewhere but in reality all we have to do is open up any book that is describing the modern scientific results and we can see probably on the first page that there isn't a single solid building block anywhere in the whole universe everything are energy particles coming together and falling apart and those magnificent scientists who found that out and actually did the tests in the laboratories to prove that could be enlightened by now if they had included themselves which is what the buddha did he said exactly the same thing he called those energy particles kalapas and by calling them that he only described what he was experiencing so if there's nothing but energy particles in the whole of the universe obviously we are part of this universe we belong with it it's all us not them out there then how come that we all think of ourselves as separate and with that separation we also have alienation and with that separation we also have domination and with that domination we also have feeling of being sometimes not recognized not appreciated we have this feeling of either trying to dominate all these other heaps or the other heaps dominating us it's all a total illusion the whole thing and it brings nothing but grief 
and everybody has experienced that grief at some time or another or is still experiencing it. Sometimes we are more aware of it than others of the grief. Sometimes when it's very quiet and we have nothing to do we don't have any way of escaping because there's nothing to escape with we may actually become aware of this grief and if we haven't learned to deal with dukkha we'll certainly blame somebody for it but in reality it is nothing but a total illusion which brings us to that separation where we feel threatened, endangered all the time. Unless somebody comes along and says, you're all right, you're great, you're fine. We are very liable to think that that person thinks we're not. In reality, that other person may never have given us a single thought. Now, with that separation comes, of course, that ego identification. I've got to identify with something because I'm separate from everybody else. I've got to identify in order to keep my strength going because if everybody is other than me, I've got to be something. The whole thing then resolves into the whole difficulty that the human race has everywhere, anywhere, all the time. We feel it's happening in business, it happens in human relationships in the family, it happens in human relationships in people living together, it doesn't matter where we are, constant difficulty. And we wonder why? Why? Because we're living in an illusion. We can't make that illusion come out right. The illusion is the same for everybody, but everybody has a little different approach to it, so we're never at ease with each other. It just doesn't work. It's only when we get rid of that illusion and we've got two people that have got rid of the illusion, then there's no problem. What is the illusion? That there's a me. If two people don't have that anymore, well, there's no problem, because who could have the problem? Until then, there's always going to be something. So what we, to come to that understanding that the me is causing the problem, is the first step. If we can feel that within, whenever there's a problem arising, any kind of problem, small, medium, large, doesn't matter, how is it caused? As long as we're thinking that it's you that's causing the problem, we haven't started anything yet. We might as well forget it and start all over again. The minute we find that me has caused the problem, then we might as well go a step further and continue to see that me is always causing any problem. There is no other way of causing a problem except the me. So when we then come to the understanding that this is something worthwhile to find out about whether it could be 
a wrong way of looking at things, meditation will be our greatest assistance. If we should get concentrated enough to have the experiences of the non-material absorption, we will have states of consciousness where there isn't a body that belongs to a person, nor is there a mind that belongs to a person. If that should be our great good karma, the whole thing resolves itself. One experiences and one sees it. No problem. If that's not our great good fortune, we've got to work at it. Working at it makes it more difficult, and it also, unfortunately, inspires some fear and resistance. If it's done through the meditation, no fear, no resistance. It's a beautiful experience. Because nothing could be more beautiful than getting rid of this constant problem. However, as long as we think this is me, and me wants to get rid of me, that's difficult, isn't it? How can me get rid of me? It just doesn't work, does it? So we have ways of investigation. The first one is, where does the idea of self arise? Does it arise from this separation from each other? Well, that's one idea that arises because of the physical separation. That physical separation, optically, it cannot be denied. But can we see everything that exists? We can't even look around corners. We can look as far as the horizon if there's no obstruction. Bees can see violet, ultraviolet light. We can't. We don't see any ultraviolet light. So bees, which are not quite as um, developed as we are, can see better than we are. So are we really only depending upon our optics to know the truth? If we are and if we were, we'll never get any further. Because the optics can't do it for us. They're far too limited. Our senses are good enough just for survival. And since that's not interesting, because it doesn't work, we can't really believe them. They're good enough not to run into the next uh, tree, naturally, the eyes, and uh, to read and such things, but anything more? What more can we do with them? So we can't really depend on that for the truth. This separation we can bridge sometimes when we actually have great loving feelings. And that's why love 
is so praised and prized. Only it's the wrong kind of love that we usually praise and prize and show in the movies. But it does bridge separation. So there, from that, we can already learn quite easily that feeling is better than looking. So that's the first step in the right direction. If we use that, and we all have had that kind of experience where we didn't feel separated, only we haven't understood it. We thought it's because that other person is so nice, so lovable, wants to love us back. The non-understood experience does not produce wisdom. The understood experience does. So if we had used it for insight, which at that time, of course, was of no interest to us, because all we were interested in was in this uh, love affair, then we would have seen something. We would have seen that our feelings are far more far-reaching, far-reaching, far better than what our senses can do. Our I, our me, this me idea, is based on feeling, isn't it? When we get up in the morning, we don't have to tell ourselves, this is me getting up. We feel it. And uh, if the alarm rings or the gong goes, we know this is me being annoyed. We don't have to look around and say, who's being annoyed? Oh, me, yes. We know exactly this is me. So it's based on feeling. Well, by the same token, non-me is also based on feeling, naturally. But unless the feeling is understood what it is, no wisdom, no result. Feeling is the experience. Understanding it is having the result of the experience. So feeling, if you want to divide it up, which the Buddha does not do, Feeling is the heart, understanding is the mind. If we don't use both, no results. So we have one way of seeing that there is a possibility of going further than just the optics. But then we need to inquire, where does this self sit? Now, as I said before, it's no use looking for non-self. Look for self. This can be a meditative endeavor when the meditation is not directed towards getting concentrated, then it is directed towards gaining insight. It's either or. And it's not overlapping. It should be known what one is doing. If we are watching the breath, we are trying to become concentrated. That goes towards calm. If we realize that the breath is impermanent, then we're going towards insight. So in the, by the same token, we could inquire, why do I believe that this is me breathing? Where does the me sit in this breath? Who is, who is telling me that this is me sitting in the breath? Where is it? 
find it. So that's one way. Where is then me sitting in that distracted thought? Where is me sitting in that inquiring thought? Where is me sitting in the painful feeling? Now, if there was a me in the painful feeling, it would stand to reason that the me would have more sense to have, instead of having painful feelings, having pleasant feelings. Such a silly me is really not to be accepted, because why is it producing painful feelings? The inquiry will bring about at least a bit of a doubt about this me. It will not bring the realization that there isn't one, but it will at least shift the solidity of the me a bit. It will not underwrite it so much anymore. When we can look at the constant movement of the thoughts, which we can surely do in meditation, or the constant movement of the feelings, which we can also do when we react, we can't find a me in there. The Buddha said we should investigate the five khandas, the five aggregates, to find out where within them we find that me. That illusion that produces hate and greed. The three roots of evil with which we are born are greed, hate and delusion. And delusion means that we think we're me. Otherwise we wouldn't be born. And greed, the wanting, and hate, the not wanting, are results of that. And it is easily discernible even in the smallest baby. We do have their opposites. We do have the three roots of good. Wisdom, generosity and love. Now if we were to be very attentive to ourselves, which most people aren't, we could constantly endeavor to cultivate the three roots of good and try to minimize the three roots of evil. The whole thing hinges on wisdom and delusion. But we cannot become wise overnight, but we can counteract our greed with generosity and our hate with love. Counteract it, working against it with that substitution, so that the delusion one day isn't quite so deeply rooted. Now when we have an understanding of the fact that we are operating on an optical illusion, that in a reality everything is moving, we can, with more mindfulness, become aware 
of the constant movement in the body. It's a constant contraction and expansion, about the best words I can think of. It is quite discernible when the mind has become concentrated enough. It's neither pleasant nor unpleasant, it's quite neutral. And if we are putting our attention on it, all it denotes to us, if we don't know anything about it, that there is something that's moving all the time. It can be so strong that it is covers us from head to toe. If we become aware of that, we're getting nearer the truth. Because if we are nothing but energy particles coming together and falling apart, that's exactly what's happening. And if we know that this is happening within us, it's easy to assume that this is happening in everybody else. And that it's happening in that airspace between us two. The whole thing is coming together and falling apart, constantly. And some of the energy particles are grosser, some are more subtle. That's why some of them are more apparent to our eyes than others. If we were to have that kind of experience, first of all, without understanding it, or secondly, without the foundation of the concentrated meditation, unfortunately it can create fear. At that time, when there is fear about it, it's important to become aware of it, of that fear, and voice it and discuss it. Because otherwise, which happens nine times out of ten, or ten times out of ten, one stops right there and never goes any further. And then, although meditation is bringing benefits that can never be denied, the great benefit of insight will be denied to one. Because there is that blockage of the ego saying, uh-uh, this far and no further. I might get lost. And that's quite true. A little further and the ego will get lost. And if one doesn't want that to happen, this is where one stops. That's all that is. The fear of the ego. Now that sometimes arises even earlier in the practice. It could arise at a time when there is concentration happening. Even then already it can arise. That one is afraid to go into that concentration. Because of the ego saying, oh, I don't want any part of that. I don't want to be denied. But if it hasn't happened then, when one has become concentrated, and the, it happens at the time of noticing this constant movement within, then it is certainly a very strong feeling of resistance and rejection, not wanting to go further. Now that has to be overcome, of course. 
that has to be overcome by realizing what is happening realizing that one is actually on to the this very hidden reality that the ego is a mistaken view one's really caught on to it but one doesn't want to give up what don't we want to give up? our identifications all the stuff that we think is going to make us happy can we ever see that even that being happy and making us happy their ownership our children, our husbands, wives, cars, refrigerators, houses, books, knowledge, trips, whatever it may be that that stuff making us happy it's never quite complete if we have become very aware of ourselves we can recognize that this happy doesn't have this completeness of an ultimate joining a complete being one with all that there is it's a separation it's me having something nice and underneath it all we do know that there's so much more so many other people such a huge universe me that little bit that one little person having it nice for that particular period of time that it's happening it can never be totally fulfilling we're kidding ourselves we're always kidding ourselves but there we're really kidding ourselves so when we come to the point where we are actually recognizing that there is this constant movement within we are coming to the point of recognizing that we're not solid and what a relief that is and we recognize we're no longer, we, we really don't think of ourselves as solid, compact. Nothing is quite as important anymore as it used to be. It's all moving. It's all transparent. It's not as important if this one person gets what he or she wants. Because what he or she wants isn't important either there is a totality of existence and we are part of it but if we want our little piece of the cake we can never be part of the whole and our little piece of the cake is never going to satisfy us we think it does that's what all the scramblers pour out in the world to get my piece of the cake that's what people are constantly fighting for no matter what that piece of cake is supposed to look like but in reality when we come to this point of knowing through personal experience this constant movement there comes a feeling of transparency that doesn't mean that we can't do the things we're supposed to do the Buddha walked for 45 years every single day in order to teach those days there weren't any cars there weren't any jet planes there were only animal drawn vehicles and he wouldn't use them in order not to give his weight for an animal to carry 
so he walked. Even though he had no feeling of self within, it doesn't matter. When the action is done for the sake of the action and not for the sake of result. And this is a very important thing to remember and to try to realize. The action is done for the sake of the action and not for the sake of result. It takes away the achievement syndrome. Another, se- another cause for worry and um, anxiety. So when we see ourselves as transparent, as not as solid as we thought we were, the fear that arises is counteracted by the understanding that the me is a nuisance and not a desirable illusion. We must have had a look at it before. We need to take a look at it many times. This isn't done overnight, but this is the path where we go. Having gone through the fear, we very clearly see the danger in being separate. The danger of separate existence. We're constantly in danger and we're constantly in the danger, in danger of wanting and not wanting, of having our ego, our me, either elated or depressed. We're constantly in danger of not being satisfied. And the whole of existence then sees, is, is seen as something that creates only problems. That doesn't mean we're looking for non-existence. That means that we're trying to find the truth behind the illusion. What it amounts to is that each person should choose one of the three characteristics, anicca dukkanatta, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, substancelessness, should choose one of those three. Whichever one appeals and use that as a subject for meditation or contemplation in the hall, outside of the hall. See if one can understand it a little more deeply. It is usually said that the person who has a great deal of confidence in the Buddha's teaching will use impermanence. A person who has a great deal of concentration will use dukkha. And a person who has an analytical mind will use non, uh, qualifiness, non-self. But that has all sorts of variations because sometimes we are concentrated and other times we're more analytical. We can use one, we can use all three. The investigation of each one leads to the same result. The one thing that we see when we investigate impermanence and really come 
to an understanding of that transparency of that constant movement that there's nothing in the universe worth scrambling for that there's nothing in the universe that we can hang on to it's all moving if we investigate dukkha and really see it properly we come to the conclusion that there's nothing to wish for because all wishes create dukkha and if we see anatta non-self properly then we become aware of the lack of substance in everything that exists comparable to the peeling of an onion you peel it and peel it and peel it and what you got at the end nothing no kernel inside you can keep peeling and then there's nothing left but it does look solid doesn't it an onion it's got all sorts of attributes it's food it has taste it has smell it has compactness and but if you take it apart there's nothing in there take ourselves apart what's left analytically apart what's left in order to gain access to an understanding of a reality which provides total peace and total harmony we need to investigate one of those three we can investigate all three at different times and we need to investigate them meditatively and contemplatively in meditation who owns the breath or that what is my basis for life how impermanent what is permanent if there is someone owning the breath where is this person where is the self or what is there really that i can wish for that will not pass away again any one of these investigations in the meditation but outside also that brings one eventually one day to an automatic reaction to whatever there is along one of those three modes one immediately thinks of impermanence or of non-self or of dukkha and that when that happens there's nothing to worry about it's all passing away anyway and that's enough about that topic maybe you have some questions you like to ask without the, the intention there is no movement but before the intention there is movement again of, of the mind right is that what you meant by the disorder of the past what is that 
In order to watch intention and then movement, all your learning is the very first step into insight, which is that mind is the master and body is the servant, and that they're two, that they're not one. We are under the impression that the very first step of insight. We are under the impression that we are one lump. When you see intention and then movement, you see mind and body. This is what that's all about, right? Now, particles, that movement, no, that's a different thing that I said what you can experience within, that this thing, yes, that's actually physical. It's very much experienced in a physical way. As if the whole body is doing this. That's an experience. Um, you can experience it in the mind. You can experience that the mind um, is also doing this all the time because it's thinking, throwing up, doing this, and you can experience it in that way. And when you experience the mind in this way, that it's constantly moving, then you know the dukkha of thinking. And that's actually going to help one to stop thinking when it's not necessary. Because that dukkha of thinking is caused by the irritation of that movement. So if one comes, comes very close to oneself, one can notice that. And then also, of course, it's no more so solid, the, the compactness of self. Right? Yes. having this negativity is because you are wishing for calm. Stop wishing for calm and use the movement of the mind for insight. You're getting dukkha because you're having wishes. Get insight behind it. You see, this is what I was saying at the very beginning. If we were to understand our experiences, we'd all be enlightened. We all know exactly what's going on because we're all experiencing anicca dukkha anatta constantly. The whole world is proclaiming it, but we don't know it. So if you're sitting there and you're having all these thoughts and you don't want them and you're getting unhappy about them because they're, they're stupid or whatever they are, um, realize that you're getting unhappy because you're having dukkha because you're wishing for something. Obviously, you're wishing for to become calm, right? So drop the wish, no dukkha. Use the thought to become aware of the movement, the constant movement. The more you go in there, the more you see that this is not anything solid, but it is a transparency which is constantly coming and going. And then look for the self in the thoughts. Who's, who's, who's thinking? Gain insight that way. If you can't get calm, do insight. 
what else? Yes. The factors that constitute our mentality, that's the four, feeling, perception, mental formation, and sense consciousness. That constitutes mentality. Is that what you're asking? Yes. Those are the four um, aggregates of the mind, and then there's the aggregate of the body. Is that what you were asking? Okay. Yes. And there are... No, um, the information is not the thinking. The thinking is something else. The thinking is the, you see, it's like this. This is the I, right? Okay. There's an I object. So then, the I consciousness and the I object meet and you've got seeing. Okay? So you've got as a base, you've got brain. Okay? That is just like this. It has no function unless something starts. So then you get an object. Object is idea. Then mind consciousness starts and you've got thinking. So then what you're paying attention to is thinking. Everything else is buried. Don't know. So then thinking, you can notice it, what it is. Constant movement. I'm not sure that that's what you were asking, but that's what I'm telling you. <laughs> is that what you were asking? Hmm? Not exactly. <laughs> Uh, mind is nothing. Mind is four aspects. Mind is, I just, I just told you this. Mind is nothing. Mind is feeling, perception, mental formation, and, and sense consciousness. Which part of it? So mind is nothing. Mind is consisting of these four things. Right? So when, when there is mind consciousness, then that meets so, to the idea, then you've got thinking. Yes, it's all particles. Certainly. But mind is such, you can't say, well, yes, mind. We do say mind and body, but in this kind of analysis, it doesn't work. You have to say which part of it. Is it feeling? Is it thinking? Which part of it? But it is all movement, yes. Constant movement. And you can feel that. You come aware of it, you can feel it to put your attention on. You see, that's another thing that's important to know. That we only know where we put our attention. So if we put our attention on these things, we can know them. If we don't put our attention there, we won't know them. It's entirely up to each one of us. We would have left it free for everyone. Anything else? Yes. Thoughts, 
Yes. 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 You certainly can do like that. The only thing that's important is to know what you're doing. That this is inside and this is calm. Yes. Certainly. Like that is fine. Always a feeling. Try it out yourself. Don't ask. Do it. <laughs> Always a feeling. Now see, if you're sitting here and you're having a pain in the knee and the mind says, I've got to get up, I can't stand it, what did you get first? The pain in the knee or the mind saying, I've got to get up? Uh-huh. Well, if that's obvious, then all others work exactly the same way. Yeah. Touch contact. Eye contact. Seeing contact. The same contact. It's the same thing. Exactly the same thing. It works the same all the time. We always think of ourselves as being such complicated uh, constructions because we've got such convoluted minds. But in reality, we're extremely simple. All we have to do is take ourselves apart and have a look. Oh, the whole thing works exactly the same for everybody. And all the time. It doesn't change. It's always a sense contact, and then comes the feeling, and then comes the perception, and then the mental formation. And he gets a bad feeling from it, so he thinks it's awful. He gets an unpleasant feeling, so he thinks it's awful. Obvious, no? Sorry? You said, well, how can somebody like it and the other person doesn't like it? The reason he likes it is because you get a good feeling. The reason you don't like it is because you get an unpleasant feeling. But you, thinking that it's beautiful, cannot understand why the other person thinks it's horrible. Sure, it depends very much on our const- how we are constituted naturally. Some people get terrible feelings from something that somebody else gets a wonderful feeling from. Certainly. Yes, it is independent of that. It's not totally independent of the uh, of perception. Why don't you try it? You 
couldn't you couldn't recognize the feeling. Yeah. Well, that from logic you can tell that it must be the feeling that comes first. But you see, another thing that happens is, of course, somebody sees something and starts thinking about it. The thinking also produces a feeling. Thinking is also a sense consciousness. So the whole thing has you have to be very, very um, alert to watch the whole business. But this is very good to be alert. Because the more alert and analytical we become, the easier it is to understand the whole process. And once you understand the whole process, you know it's just a process. Yes. Well, if we were to see only the color and the, the shape and would never explain it to ourselves, then we would also not be concerned with feeling. But that is impossible in daily life. We can't do that. I mean, if you saw a truck coming and all you saw was color and shape and the mind didn't say, that truck's going to run over you, we'd be dead in, in no time. So we can't do that. We've got to discern what it is. So when we discern what it is, we're also um, dependent upon our, um, our habitual uh, uh, ways of seeing things. We're habituated, so we are dependent on that. So that also has, has part in it. But the feeling creates the mental formation but because there's habituation in it, there can already be something in there also which is mental, which will then also influence your feeling. So that's why we have constantly different feelings about all sorts of things and cannot agree with other people and think that they must be stupid or wrong or uh, giving us a bad time because they see things entirely different from us and have a totally different reaction. And particularly if we come from different societies and cultures. Where in our society one thing is okay and another culture is totally taboo. And the minute it's seen, because there is something in, in, that, in, that, um, um, in our brainwashing that has happened, it's already seen as something bad feeling arises. So there is that within us which already colors our scene. So that, that is already colored because we don't just go to color and shape. If we were to only stay with color and shape, that wouldn't happen. It would never happen. You see, if we, if we sit here and we just stay with touch contact, we'd never have an unpleasant feeling. Touch contact. No unpleasant feeling. But we don't stay with that. We can't. It's impossible for us to do that. So we get an unpleasant feeling. 
And then because we're habituated to call on all unpleasant feelings pain, we say pain. And then of course we start getting angry or upset about pain or disliking it, whatever it is. So the same happens, of course, when we see something. We don't just see. We have an immediate idea and then comes the feeling. So that, that idea also colors the feeling. But the mental formation then is our reaction. That's our reaction to it. No, with the sense contact. You can't start with a reaction. Sorry? You start with a reaction. If you sit here and you don't like sitting anymore because it hurts, how can you start with that? It has to hurt first. No, that's the first thing you're becoming aware of. No, you have to go backward now. No, it's all, it's all no, no. That's much too fast. If you only experience a reaction, you haven't become aware of what you're reacting to. Right, that's exactly what I'm saying. Well, but the reaction wouldn't happen if one were aware of all the things that went before it. And if it's artificial, that's exactly what I've been saying. Being so wonderfully natural hasn't really brought us what we're looking for. We're not trying to become unnatural. We're trying to become supernatural. So we need to go and check out where our reactions come from. And once we have checked that, we don't need those reactions anymore. Some of them, some of them are necessary for survival, but we don't need, lots of them we don't need anymore. It is. It, it does go round and round. But unless we have enough mindfulness to see the cycle, we haven't broken through to the react, through reaction yet. We're going to keep on reacting in the same way. No. No, I wouldn't say so. 
no, I wouldn't say that a whole sitting period, but I would suggest that one can give it some time. A whole sitting period is a bit much for that. No. No. No, it doesn't. But in order to get in hang, the hang of it, one should give it a little time. But a whole sitting period is too long, much too long. Well, sometimes the mind doesn't want to get calm. And that... <laughs> and then you can choose the contemplation. And as you do this one, you may get some insight from it. It may be an aha experience. You see, our reactions are not usually to our pain in the knee, because it only happens when we're sitting in meditation. Our reactions are usually to people saying something that we don't like. So when we get at the hang of this whole sequence, we can realize, aha, ear, uh, hearing contact, right? Unpleasant feeling. Don't like that person. Let me get away or tell her off. The whole sequence then becomes one which we know and we don't have to react anymore. Next time it happens, we may be able to get to that feeling and say, oh, well, unpleasant feeling, it doesn't matter. Unpleasant feeling. And it dissipates. The combination the condemnation yes exactly and in order to get rid of all this negativity we need to analyze and if we analyze we can see ourselves in our parts and as we analyze and see ourselves in our parts we no longer are so concerned with calling ourselves as the Buddha said a cart, but we can see that there are wheels and there's an axle and there's a, a, a sides to it and a brake and as they're put together then all of a sudden it's a cart and here we can see that all of a sudden we, we hate somebody but we can analyze it and come back to this whatever it occurred and then we don't have to hate or dislike or reject or whatever it is that's what the point of this is. But obviously we don't sit an whole hour doing that. But it is very helpful. Very helpful. Because in daily life we can do it. We just go back to the feeling and say, oh well, unpleasant feeling, and it dissipates, it goes. No need to react. Yeah. No. No. Everybody experiences feeling, perception, mental formations. Everybody, uh, but they are colored by that. Hmm? No. The Buddha, who is enlightened, also has feeling, perception, mental formation. Everybody has feeling, perception, mental formation. Impossible to be a human being without them. They are colored by some of our conditioning, yes. 
some of it is colored by it. Perception is colored by memory. It's not conditioning. It is part of the human being. It's mind. Your mind consists of feeling, perception, mental formation, and sense consciousness. That's what your mind consists of. And you can find out about it by checking it up. By checking inside of yourself whether that is really so. Is that clear? You better try that out. It's not the fault of your parents, I assure you. <laughs> try it out. When you get a pain in the knee, try it out and see whether you feel anything or not. And when you see a pretty flower, see what you feel. Try it out. The sense contact produces feeling no matter what you do. You can't help that. It's the Paticca Samuppada, the 12-point depend origination. And of course we are, we have certain conditions which do color or discolor it. The main discoloration comes from the ego. It's not the perception necessarily that makes you react, it's a feeling that makes you react. The perception just says it's a flower. The reaction says that I, I like it or I don't like it. That depends on the good or the bad feeling that you get. If you get a good feeling from it, you want you like it, and if you get a bad feeling from it, you don't like it. That would be very nice, yes. <laughs> nothing. Nothing at all. No. No. But you can change the reaction. That's what I told this morning. That's what I told yesterday. That's what I told day before yesterday, which is called equanimity. If you're... Mm, the mental formation turns into equanimity, um, whatever you have a sense contact with, the... Um, the feeling may not be quite as uh, strong then when you have practiced more equanimity, but you still get your feeling. But the feeling may not be so strong. That's quite true. may not be quite so unpleasant or so wonderfully pleasant. But it still has. There are still pleasant, unpleasant, neutral feelings. 
for the change highly unlikely highly unlikely when the Buddha stubs his toe on a, on a rock it doesn't become pleasant but he doesn't have any bad thoughts about it it's all very simple very simple What, like something you eat? Yes, well then produce a nice feeling. The taste is only the constant contact. Yes. Yes, you've changed your, t- your sense contact. You haven't changed your, your um, uh, feeling about it. You've changed your sense contact, the taste. So when you like the taste now, then it's good. But I think, you know, it would be much better, much, much better for everyone to actually do it. Wouldn't it? It's impossible like this. It doesn't get anywhere. Do it. And you know all about it. Stub your toe on the next rock. (laughs) And then see what you say about it in your mind. And then look at a little wildflower and see what your mind says about it. It's very simple, the whole thing. But it's got to be done. And if we do that deliberately now in the course, it doesn't have to be done even in meditation. You can do it outside. If you do it in the course deliberately, then in daily life, that makes a difference. Yes, Jeff? Sorry, I'm not with you. Say again. Yes. Sure. Yes, uh, it's... uh, Oh, it's probably quite conscious. Yeah, it's probably... It probably... The resistance can be seen quite quite, uh, consciously. And if that resistance is there, well, if you can't do anything about it, you've got to live with it. To get rid of it? Well, the resistance is the ego not wanting to be shoved aside. By, by not wanting to investigate. Well, more not to investigate what, like what I've just said. You don't want to, maybe you don't want to investigate the uh, um, futility of this illusion. And also, the ego may say, well, if I go any further with this practice, maybe I will get shocked aside. Maybe I should better not, not meditate anymore. Can be. It's possible. Anything is possible. Mind's so tricky. Sure. So there's some sort of uh, 
our strategies to, to counteract this ego's uh, silliness. Yes. Yes. Well, all the strategies that I could think of this evening I've already mentioned. If I can think of more, I'll mention them tomorrow. But I've mentioned them all to see how absurd this idea is and to see how much uh, unhappiness it produces and how it can never produce the whole thing because we're always getting a small part for me. Well, it, it depends how strong the ego is, you know. So maybe one has to work at uh, um, making the ego less, less strong first through other measures like generosity, helpfulness, service, um, particularly generosity and loving-kindness. They are both ego reducers. Mm. They are certainly, they are certainly help, yes. But that's also all individual, you know. All I can tell you is what the Buddha said and what's, where it goes, huh? But I can't give any guarantees. The Buddha didn't give any either. <laughs> he said, try it, you know. But it's impossible to guarantee. And each person has a different, um, is at a different spot and has a, a different um, way of dealing with these things. So it's, you can't make hard and fast rules. But certainly, that's for sure. Generosity given from the heart and loving kindness given from the heart reduces ego because it's a giving out <coughs> yes. ah well that's one thing no I didn't say that I, uh, what I'm saying is that if one practices generosity towards others and practices loving-kindness towards others, that reduces the ego. No, as a, as a, as a support system. That, that helps. But if I can think of something else, I'll let you know. <laughs> and please put the attention on the breath for just a few moments. Let compassion arise in your heart for your own difficulties, for anything that you're not satisfied with. Compassion and acceptance. Not struggling, not rejecting, 
accepting, gently, caring, compassionate. Fill yourself with those feelings and surround yourself with them. Extend that compassion and acceptance to the person nearest you in this room. Compassion for any difficulty, any pain. Gently caring and accepting. Fill that person with your compassion. Surround him or her with it. Extend your compassion and your care to everyone here, everyone's difficulty and pain. Be gently caring, accepting, embracing. <laughs> 